But when I was a kid, I had one of these. Y'all remember these? They're, they're Viewmasters is what they're called. Mattel made them. And, um, you know, before internets and smartphones and YouTube and all that, the only kind of on-demand pictures you could get came in magazines and, like, encyclopedias. I, I had, for a time, National Geographic for kids. So I'd look at the pictures of animals and stuff. And my mom and dad I had an old set of Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedia that I used to look through. And the pictures there were worse than National Geographic because they were, like, strictly black and white. And those pictures are good if you're interested in animals or cars or scenery, geography, all those kinds of things. But, you know, the pictures are so flat and they're just lifeless kind of on the page. But the Viewmaster sort of changed all that for me. Um, and the old one said stereo vision on here. And the, that's an important thing because I didn't realize this, but when I ordered one from Amazon this week and got it to look at, the disc has identical images opposite of each other. And of course the engineers in the room understand this, but us rednecks, we don't. Um, what happens is, it takes, through the patented stereo vision technology, it takes these two identical images and superimposes them on top of the other so that when you look through here to look at the rhinoceros, it's not flat, but there's some depth to it and some life. It's three-dimensional almost. And even, you know, depending on how you do it, it looks like he's dancing. And uh, it's pretty cool. And this week I was, you know, waiting out my quarantine, uh, working in the garage, couldn't smell anything, so that was good, I, but I was getting the contact high from all the fumes that were out there of motor oil or whatever. But it came to me, stereo vision. Stereo vision. Because this vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7 really does bring two pictures together in an important way. Now, Daniel was living in Babylon in exile, and he was surrounded by kings and princes who primarily saw the world through one lens, uh, politics and power, schemes, military campaigns. And as a trusted advisor, I'm sure Daniel was brought in a thousand times for questions on plans of attack and who should be elevated to what position in the empire. And us, I mean, we're living in a day when everything's political and you can't escape it can't say anything on the stage as a preacher without it being interpreted in a thousand ways. So your only hope is to be an equal opportunity offender. And so just offend everybody. Just lower the cannons and let them rip, you know. But if you only look at the world through that one lens of power and politics, you're like looking in a magazine or an encyclopedia. You may get a picture of reality. There's no life to it. And what God does in Daniel chapter 7 is He takes His perspective of the world and He sort of lays it on top of Daniel's perspective, His earthly perspective, to bring out the life, the dimensions and depth to what God intended to do for His people. And so this morning, I want you to see that. I feel like it's one of those times when I just kind of want to get out of the way and let God speak. I don't think I'm going to do justice to what this passage as for us, but if we get anywhere close to my target, you'll know this, that we'll be faithful for the future if we see how God has evaluated human dominion and replaced it with the kingdom of His Son. 
And so let's look here at the book and see what God has to say to us. This is Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side. And three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings, four wings, get that in your brain, four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth, uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow. That's his robe, like white snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. And I love this. A river of fire was flowing out and coming out before it. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat. And the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which that little horn was speaking. And I kept looking again until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven... One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise in the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom 
and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. God's people said? Amen. 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 Now this seventh chapter marks the beginning of the second half of the book, Daniel. If you're with us this fall, you probably remember the first six chapters, how they told the story of Daniel's life in Babylon, the great stories of fiery furnaces and lion's dens. And we kind of got a good picture of what Daniel's 70 years of exile looked like. But here in chapter 7, we sort of revert back in the timelines. The first year of the king Belshazzar, 50 years after Daniel has been taken captive to Babylon. And Daniel starts to get visions, special revelatory unveilings of what God is doing in the world. The last half of the book contains four of those visions. And each of them revolves around one specific set of events. The events that we just read in chapter 7 and that we're going to see uh, the rest of next week. Each of the other visions is the first. Each of the other visions sort of zooms in on an aspect of this one vision to sort of open it up and explain it even more. Because the deal is this. Daniel knew that an end to exile had been promised. But he was wondering how exactly it would happen. And God gave these visions to give Daniel an assurance that it would happen in God's time and in God's way so that his people would have hope as they trusted in him. You might have noticed chapter 7 is difficult and challenging because of all the vivid images of beasts and seas and thrones and angels. And we're going to work through those. And you know, since the, this book was written, the, the Jewish rabbis and Christian scholars, I mean, they have spent thousands of hours trying to explain it and have debated it to no end. And perhaps you've heard sermons or read books about Daniel, seen movies about these apocalyptic visions, and uh, all the visions and images are a little too much for you to bear. Well, I kind of was there with you, uh, wrestling with this stuff, uh, talking to pastor friends of mine. How do you handle these things? Uh, most of them said, hey, you know, uh, just breeze through quickly. And... Uh, <laughs> Be general, not too specific. But uh, I'm young and dumb, and so I'm going to give it to you the way I see it, the way I understand it. And I don't want us to get bogged down in the images, but to receive the message that God conveys through it. And if we do that, I think the first thing we'll see is that human dominion is expressed in subhuman and disordered ways. Obviously, the the major feature of chapter 7 is this train of beasts that emerges from a sea. Daniel says he sees this, this great sea, an endless, limitless ocean. It's not the Mediterranean Sea or the Pacific Ocean or any kind of body of water that you or I might could visit. This is a symbolic sea that I believe represents all the mass of humanity, whom Isaiah says in Isaiah 11, the thundering of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. As Daniel looks out on the sea, symbolizing humanity, this train of beasts comes forth. And each of them is different from the one it follows. And, and they kind of get worse as things progress. Uh, you know, stranger and stranger and stranger. And I think that is an important feature of these beasts that we have to understand. The first one's kind of normal. You know, out comes a lion. Uh, lions are noted for their ferocity and their majesty. Across the world, they're the king, right, of the animal kingdom. But this lion had the wings of an eagle on its back. 
which I believe symbolized its swiftness in flight and its ability to attack its prey wherever it would like. Of course, a major feature of the lion is that it doesn't stay a lion. But somebody from somewhere comes down and plucks its wings off its back, stands it up on its hind legs, and gives it the mind of a man. Kind of normal, given what follows. Right? Because this second beast is strange. A bear, it's grotesque. I like the way Daniel describes it. He says, it was raised up on one side. Now, some scholars think this means that the bear is on its hind legs, ready to pounce. But to me, if God was trying to communicate that to us, I think he would say it was standing on its hind legs, like he'd done before. Instead, it's like haunched over, leaning over, one side higher than the other. And in its mouth are the leftovers from its last meal, the unconsumed ribcage of its last victim. And the voice says, Arise and devour much meat. Now, a third beast comes out, a leopard, also noted throughout the world for its strength and ferocity as a predator. But this one has four wings, not two wings, which is strange, a hybrid, like a griffin of myth. This one has four wings, and not just four wings, but four heads that are turning all different ways. And I believe those four wings and four heads symbolize its ability and desire to control and feast on prey in every direction, front, back, side to side, north, south, east and west. And if these were the only beasts that were here, that'd give us a lot to think about. We'd debate it. But then this fourth beast comes out. It's, it's so terrible. It defies even description. We're not even told what kind of animal it looks like, just that it's different than all the rest. And it's terrible. It has iron teeth. It comes up out of the sea. It starts feasting on stuff. Whatever it can't fit in its mouth and whatever falls out, he tramples underneath him, crushes everything in his path. Of course, then you come to the horns. Daniel says, this beast had horns. And horns are noted throughout Scripture, probably because the ancient Israelites were shepherds, and they knew all about horns, having watched their goats and their sheep fight with their giant horns for you know, power in the flock. Who's the leader? Who is the alpha male? Because of that, the horn came to symbolize a leader's strength, and his power, and his dominance. And while most animals, sheep and goats, have two horns, this beast has ten horns. Which, if you can, I don't, I've tried to visualize that. And I can't. I can't even wrap my mind around where those horns would go. But we quickly move through the incomprehensibility of ten horns to an emerging little horn. It starts to grow, and as it grows, it displaces three of the earlier horns, which is strange. But kids lose teeth, and new teeth come in behind, so maybe this is something like that. But no, this horn has the eyes of a man and a mouth that emits an endless stream of boasts. And, and given what we're going to see in chapter 8, I have to imagine that when he speaks of boasts, he's talking about arrogant self-aggrandizing statements about how good he is, about how powerful he is, about how dominant he is, about how no one in all the world would dare defy me. And so Daniel stands there looking at these beasts. He says they were disturbing to him. These beasts were disturbing. And he was anxious about them. Because here's the deal. 
Had these beasts simply been the grotesque characters of a nightmare, he could have pinched himself, woken up, oh, just a dream, I'm good. But Daniel had a deep sense that these beasts weren't simply figments of his imagination, but that they pointed beyond themselves to something that was real. Something that he had to understand. Something that held significance for his life. So he goes up to one of the angels who's standing there and he says, please, you've got to help me. Tell me what these beasts are all about. And in verse 17, the angel tells him, these four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Chapter 7 is sort of one of the easier passages because it contains within it its own interpretation. We don't have to debate what these beasts are and what they symbolize, what they signify. God tells us these are four kings. They're not benevolent kings like good King Wenceslas or something. These are terrible tyrants who crush everything before them. They're the kind of tyrants that Daniel would have known well having served in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and of Belshazzar, and having witnessed all the political maneuvering of the ancient Near East. And maybe as Daniel sees this train of four beasts, something triggers in his mind that brings him back to the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had several dozen years before. Maybe you remember back in chapter 2. It's a dream of a giant statue. Each element of it made of different materials. A head of gold, a torso of silver, legs of bronze, feet of iron and clay. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know what it represented. What did it signify? So Daniel prays to the Lord and God gives him its interpretation. He comes to him and he says, Lord King, you are the head of gold. And each of the other that follow you will be a kingdom inferior to yours. Right? Each the head, gold, good, got it. Nebuchadnezzar. Silver, a king that's going to follow Nebuchadnezzar. Legs of bronze, got it. King that's going to follow that other guy. Feet of iron and clay, good. The fourth king in the line. And surely those similarities between chapter 2 and chapter 7 rung a bell for Daniel. Maybe he knew that these things corresponded to one another. Maybe Daniel thought that what was happening here in these two visions was related. I think so. Um, the fourth beast of chapter 7 is described as having teeth of iron and devouring and breaking in pieces and stamping whatever was left with its feet. And the fourth kingdom of chapter 2 says that God says that it will be as strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. So the fourth kingdoms in both chapter 2 and chapter 7 are described in the same way. So here we sit, 21st century, Benefit of hindsight to look back and say, all right, if the first kingdom of chapter 2 was Nebuchadnezzar, and that corresponds to the first king that emerges from the sea of humanity in chapter 7, we at least have a starting point. We have Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe you remember Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance and how he flaunted God's authority and looked over the city of Babylon and said, Babylon the great, the city that I've built. And in that moment, his mind vanished. He became like a beast of the field. said he grew feathers. His, his fingers looked like the pinions of an eagle. But that when he acknowledged God and humbled himself before him, God restored to him the mind of a man. 
So I think the beast of chapter 7, that is the lion that emerges from the sea with wings like an eagle that stand up on its hind legs and get the mind of a man, represents Nebuchadnezzar. From that point, it's not hard to follow because history tells us what kingdom and empire took over all that Nebuchadnezzar had built. Is the Persian Empire, led by Cyrus, who had combined his Persian Empire with the empire of his grandfather, the Median Empire. We call it the Medo-Persian Empire. I think that's the second beast of chapter 7, with an elevated side. The elevated side is the Persian side, Cyrus's side. The third kingdom followed the Medo-Persian empires, the Greek kingdom of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered more territory in the ancient world than any empire or kingdom that had come before it, and he did it all in less than 10 years. He defeated the Persians in one year, and eight years later, his soldiers rebelled against him. Amazing. Swift. Like a guy has got four wings going in any direction he wants. Ferocious in his military capabilities. The last kingdom, then, must be the Roman Empire, who conquered the ancient world. I mean, Europe, Asia, Africa, the Middle East. Maybe you know they ruled with an iron fist, crushing every sort of opposition until, um, lesson to be learned from history, their own decadence brought them down from within. So there are the four kingdoms of Daniel chapter 7. And, and to readers like us, living as we do at the end of the age, looking in the newspapers, trying to figure things out. The identification of these beasts seems like the primary takeaway. You know, it's like what we really want to know. Who do these beasts represent and what are they all about? But that wasn't the case for Daniel. You may have noticed that God doesn't identify the beasts by name. Instead, he just paints this picture of kings in general, of kings in outline, of what human dominion is all about. And he tells us that human dominion is fundamentally disordered and beast-like. Each of these kings possesses dominion over their little corner of the ancient world for their specific period of time. And we know that God had given them that. This vision tells us that, that both their dominion and the time in which they rule is under the supervision and direction of God. And it's been that way from the beginning. You know, in, in the very beginning of the world, you know, and you all know I go back to Genesis 1 all the time. It's so fundamental. You think about this. God made mankind, and he blessed them. Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created man to have dominion. And in his created condition, you could imagine what that dominion would look like. Adam, working and keeping the garden tending to it, extending God's rule and reign over the face of the earth so that the glory of God covered the face of the, water, the earth like the waters cover the sea. That was Adam's goal. That was Adam's intention. That was the purpose for which Adam had been created, to exercise dominion. And yet because of Adam's sin, the exercise of that dominion, which was meant to exalt God and lift Him up and extend order over the face of the earth, has become disordered. And rather than having dominion over the creatures and the beasts of the field, man becomes like a beast himself. Broken, fragmented within. Unable to connect with the God who loved him and created him for such a purpose. If you trace it through scripture, it's not hard to miss the disordered dominion that mankind 
takes. Maybe you're reading through the Hungry for the Word Bible reading plan this week, and you read the story of Lamech, chapter 4 of Genesis, who boasts to his two wives, oh, if if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, Lamech's is 70 times 7. A man insulted me. A young man slapped me across the face, and I killed him. That's not justice. That's not eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's disordered dominion. We get to Genesis chapter 11. We see mankind assembled at Babel, the great predecessor of Babylon the Great, not exalting the name of the Lord, but building a monument to their achievement so they make a name for themselves. That's a disordered dominion we're talking about. The disordered dominion that led Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Jerusalem, to give in to the Jewish religious leaders' wishes, hand over Jesus Christ to be crucified. That's not justice. That's not equity. That's disordered dominion. The disordered dominion that we saw this week in the news. The dominion that's aggressively taken by angry and destructive mobs is an affront against the holiness and justice of God. Just as silencing and shaming one's political opponents is disordered dominion. Neither are right. Neither exalt God. Instead, it's an aggressive me versus the world attitude. And that's what Daniel's vision in chapter 7 is all about. It portrays what we know in our heart of hearts, see play out across the world every day and in human history, that human dominion is exercised in subhuman and disordered ways. And if that were all we had to go on, what a terrible image we'd have. But thankfully, we have stereo vision. And God comes in and provides His perspective. You think the world's all politics? Let me show you what's really going on, Daniel. And we see next that God has judged human dominion. And its days are numbered. Now almost immediately after this chaotic stream of beasts come out of the sea, Daniel's attention is drawn to the serene environment of the heavenly courtroom. You may even notice in your Bible that it's not just prose written like a paragraph. It's set off in the margins as if it's poetry. God's drawing our attention to something. Your world's a mess and chaos. Look to me. I reign in perfect order. Of course, the first thing Daniel sees is a throne. A throne. And we, we read the word court here. The court was seated. And we imagine the judge high above his bench, witness stand over here, the lawyers back there, the bar behind him. That's the kind of court we imagine. But the court Daniel sees is one he would have known well, the one he'd served the last 50 years of his life in, the court of a king who has his throne at the center of the room and all his nobles and princes are gathered around him on their thrones and they're all together to exercise control over this kingdom as he rules and reigns over everything. That's what Daniel sees. He sees God in his heavenly throne room. Of course, God's throne draws his attention pretty quickly. There's fire on it. It's a flaming fire. His wheels are made of fire. From it flows a stream of fire. I, I imagine the flowing stream of lava that comes out of a volcano or the tip of a blowtorch. That's what I imagine when I think of a, a river of fire. And throughout Scripture, fire represents God's presence which is at the same time both like inviting and attractive. And so you think of things like when Moses saw the burning bush 
And he's like, whoa, that's a bush on fire not being consumed. I got to go check that out. He was drawn in, drew near to the fire of God's presence. Or like when Israel is led out of Egypt by a pillar of fire by night, God assuring them of his presence with them and his leadership before them. So it's inviting, attractive, but at the same time, it's dangerous. Like when fire came out of the tabernacle, when people came before the Lord in an irreverent and unworshipful way. That's what this fire is all about. But of course, on the throne is what's most important. Daniel sees God himself, of course, looking like an elderly and regal king, one who's reigned a long time and has the white hair and beard to prove it. Of course, his robes are brilliant white as well. Both of those, the white hair and the white robe, symbolizes God's purity and his holiness. Right? And around him are thousands and thousands, myriads and myriads of angels who have joined with him for judgment. So before him, he has his books. The books that Moses says he keeps a record of each of our days. The books that David says he keeps count of all the tears we've cried. The meticulous, personal, detailed knowledge God has, not just of the world, but of each person who has ever and will ever live on it. The book's not open to Daniel's page or to Judah's page. The books are open to the pages of these kings that the beasts represent. And particularly, God's zooming in and highlighting the account of this fourth beast. So as Daniel's taking this scene of the heavenly courtroom ready for judgment, all of a sudden, that little horn, endlessly spewing and spouting all kind of vile and arrogant boasts, is struck dead. His body's dismembered, destroyed. I don't know if this is how you would quarter out an animal to burn it on an altar, or if this just shows us the anger with which God carries out his judgment towards the disordered and subhuman kings of earth. But in either case, the body's immediately caught up in flames and burned. And then the dominion that's still hanging out there somewhere is taken away from the other three beasts, though God mercifully allows their life to continue for a period of time. Listen, the vision began with a train of terrible tyrants coming up out of the sea. But it ends with the perfect justice of God. No matter what it looks like on the world stage, these kings conquering and devouring and crushing all their opponents, God sits above it all. Like John read for us in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the kings take counsel with themselves to set themselves up against the Lord and His anointed? Then verse 4. The one who sits in the heavens is really upset that they've offended him and denied him. He's, he's really pers- his feelings are hurt that they would ever do such a thing. No, he laughs at them. Who do you think you are? You think you really rule and reign? I'll show you. With one blast of the fire of my wrath, you're consumed. Oh yeah, human kings and politicians believe they can go on scheming, manipulating, aggressively seizing power, and they'll never face any repercussions. And if you look, up, if you look at it, two-dimensional, like Funkin' Wagnalls, that's the way it appears. You know, what, what could Daniel do 
to defy Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. They say the word, you're thrown into a furnace. They say the word, you're in a lion's den. What could he do? What could Judah do? Oh, yeah, they once had a great history. A wonderful king named David and his son Solomon built a wonderful temple. But now they're dispossessed and scattered in the world without a homeland. What could they do against the greatest world powers that had ever been known? Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander, all the Caesars, they were without a doubt in their generation the most powerful and masterful manipulators of world politics. What could anyone do? No kingdom could defy them. Nobody stood a chance against them on the battlefield. They saw what they wanted, and they took it by force. And then we, we're here where we are, 2021, kind of looks the same. How, how could God's people ever get an upper hand on a political system, internationally, nationally, take your pick of really the scope of it, a political system that, I mean, we're not scandalized by scandals. We, we expect almost every prominent elected official to be a self-serving degenerate who doesn't care about the people they serve. That's just what, that's kind of the feature of the system, not a flaw. So what are we, what are we going to do against that? How could 65 people gathered in a sanctuary ever stand up against the kingdoms of the earth? And then we come to Daniel 7. And everything sort of fits together and the depth to God's way in the world becomes clear. Yeah, human dominion is exercised violently, oppressively, bestially, subhuman ways. But God is in control and He has evaluated, judged them, and their days are numbered. Because the most important two verses in this first section, verses 13 and 14, because the beast, the fourth beast handed over to be burned, and all of a sudden Daniel's attention is, is caught back to the other scene, the heavenly courtroom where God sits in perfect serenity, peace, and calm. And another figure appears, this time not emerging from the sea, but appearing in the clouds. Not a beast, but a son of man, a human as we were created to be. And he doesn't walk into the throne room. He rides in on the clouds, and this is a beautiful, beautiful picture that we, we think of like transportation of the Jetsons in their hover cars. But in the ancient Near East, the, uh, it's an actual thing in the scholarly literature. Cloud riders. Cloud riders. It's a common uh, image in the ancient myths. Baal was known as a cloud rider. He was a storm god. And so when you needed rain, you prayed to Baal because he'd bring rain. And that's understandable why a people living in an arid environment would worship a God who's supposed to bring rain. But it's not just Baal. Yahweh is also depicted in the Old Testament as a cloud rider. Like, for example, in Psalm 18, when the psalmist praises Yahweh who made darkness his covering and thick clouds dark with water. God arrived on behalf of his people on a cloud, in a thundercloud. Isaiah, in Isaiah 19, says that God came in, ju to, in judgment to Egypt, riding on a swift cloud. And so here comes this Son of Man, not walking in, strolling in, not crawling His way in, but riding in, like God, to the throne room of heaven. And when He gets there, the angel, I imagine a trumpet blast, He's announced, it says, 
Can you imagine what that would have been in an ancient court? The, the trumpet blast now presenting to you the Son of Man. And God takes the dominion that once was passed from human king to human king to human king to human king, exercised in violent, oppressive, disordered ways, and he hands it over to him. You take it. See if you can do anything with it. Daniel says this dominion is not like the dominion that came before. Not a dominion that's passed from person to person to person, from one corner of the ancient world to the next, but it's taken up in Him for all peoples. It's an everlasting dominion which will never pass away. A dominion over all peoples, nations, and languages. His time is not bound to be followed by another king, another beast like Nebuchadnezzar's statue or like the beasts in the train out of the sea. Instead, His dominion lives forever. See, Daniel's dream, his vision, doesn't just depict the geopolitical maneuverings of the ancient world, like we're looking at Funk and Wagner's encyclopedia trying to figure out which emperor followed Cyrus. It's not about that at all. Instead, it describes the great act by which God judges human kings once and for all and establishes a new kingdom in the Son of Man. And so the important thing for us today is understanding who this Son of Man is. And I think you probably know the Jewish rabbis debated it. They, they saw something of divinity in the Son of Man who rides on the clouds like only God can do. And they thought maybe someday this Son of Man would be the exalted Messiah that God had promised to David, who was going to reign on his throne right next to God, just like he had said in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. So they debated. They wrote letters. One scholar says that it was the constant opinion of all the rabbis, even up through the Middle Ages, that the Son of Man in Daniel 7 was the Messiah. Of course, we come to the New Testament, the authoritative, inspired Word of God, which tells us exactly what to understand, and we don't have to speculate or debate. We know 100% who the Son of Man is. The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. And he told the Jews in John chapter 8, when the Son of Man is lifted up, amen on the cross, when the Son of Man is lifted up, you will know that I am He. When the Son of Man is lifted up, you'll know that I am He. That's John chapter 8, 28. Furthermore, the New Testament authors constantly take up the same images that the rabbis pointed to to interpret Daniel chapter 7 from Psalm 2 that John read and from Psalm 110. And they applied them to Jesus like Peter did on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And at the end of his sermon, he looked the Jews in the face and he said, David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Lord Jesus when he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's Acts 2.34. And in Acts 4, Peter and John leave the Sanhedrin and they pray a prayer to God. Quoting Psalm 2 with reference to Jesus. They say, Oh, why do the nations rage and the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and His anointed? And they did set themselves against your servant, Jesus. The New Testament is crystal clear. The Son of Man is none other than Jesus Himself. He is the exalted Son of Man who even now is reigning over all. 
But, but here's the deal. Amen, for sure. And we're going to get to the amens in a second. But I've got to deal with the person out here right now who says, yeah, Brad, that's great. It's great that Jesus is the Son of Man and exerts dominion over all, but why doesn't he come and do something about this mess? Is the Bible to be trusted? I get that Daniel had this dream, and that's good. I have dreams all the time, but I don't try to base my whole worldview on them. But what happens is Daniel's vision does come to pass, but in unexpected and unforeseen ways. Paul says in Colossians 2 that having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them in the cross. Listen, Jesus didn't come in as they wanted him to on a white horse, ready to beat the Roman Empire at its own game, to be more powerful, more dominant, more oppressive than they ever could. Jesus is the one who looked at his disciples in the face and he said, hey, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but not so among you. For the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's different than anybody would ever expect. Jesus takes his place at God's right hand, not as a conquering warrior, but as a suffering servant. So that Paul could say in Philippians chapter 2 that he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross, and because of that, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name. They say in Acts chapter 5 that God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Yeah, Jesus is ruling and reigning, but in a way that's unexpected because only frame of reference you and I have is a disordered and subhuman kind of dominion. We need Jesus to recalibrate us to what's real, what kind of dominion he exercises. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, that everything is in subjection to him. And by that, God means that he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Instead, we see him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's Psalm 8. You ought to check that out this afternoon. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the kind of dominion that the Son of Man exercises, one that extends the life of human kingdoms by his grace for one reason and one reason alone. Don't consider the patience of God to be slowness, brothers. Rather, his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Well, the world doesn't see it, but it is a mercy and grace of God that he doesn't arrive in this very moment and enact his perfect rule. He waits for his people to be called home. And so Daniel's vision vividly portrayed for him a future day when all the human kingdoms of the earth would be judged by God and handed over to this Son of Man. And given the benefit of hindsight, we understand that in the fullness of time, during the Roman Empire, God did send forth His Son, and He lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, was raised victorious over the grave, and now sits at the Father's right hand where He promises to come from again to judge His enemies and establish His perfect rule on earth. So, living as we do after the first half of Daniel's prophecy comes true and waiting for its fullness... We need to see how this vision shapes our attitudes today.
Right? Because if my target is right, we'll only be faithful for the future if we see how God has evaluated human dominion and replaced it with the kingdom of His Son, then we need to understand exactly how that is. And so I've got a few categories that I want to challenge you with today. If this is true, then our attitude towards government must shift. Our attitude towards government must shift. And here is two aspects of this. Number one, we've got to hold our national identity with a loose hand. Daniel's vision tells us that human history progresses from one kingdom to the next. Right? One follows the next. He's thinking primarily of the 500 years that lay before him. But I think we could look back to the time of Christ and see how that is absolutely still the case. That one kingdom follows another. You may have noticed in this passage, the only kingdom which receives God's promise of eternal dominion is the kingdom of God, not the United States of America. And even under the best of circumstances, this tells us that our nation won't last forever. It's coming to an end. When Jesus returns to establish His kingdom on earth, it's Him who rules. So, I take that to mean that whether my nation collapses within itself because of its decadence now or 500 years from now, the result's the same. Nations come, nations go. The kingdom of God lasts forever. Therefore, our goal is to hold our national identity with a loose hand. A hand's still on it. We still vote for the person we think is going to bring a more ordered and just rule to the nation. We still are contributing members of society, paying taxes, loving our neighbor as best as we can, giving help in the form of physical assistance to whatever local organizations there are, whatever. Yeah, hold it with a loose hand, though. Remember, your citizenship is in heaven, and from it you await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform your lowly body to be like His glorious body by the same power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. So hold your national identity with a loose hand. But at the same time, if this is true, there's no reason to fear human government. No reason to fear human government. You know, you couldn't have faulted Daniel for receiving this vision and then despairing over the fatalistic, predetermined outcome of his life. You know, God didn't tell Daniel, hey, I'm going to do you like I did Elijah and just take you up in this throne with wheels. I'm going to bring you up into heaven and you'll be able to live with me forever. Now Daniel died in exile, never getting to see the fullness of the kingdom of God. But he wasn't afraid. God's vision had given him hope. He knew that it didn't matter how nasty human kings got. In the end, God wins. His kingdom prevails. He judges those human kings. And so while we may get the opportunity to add our voices to the chorus of ancient Israel who cried out to God and they were under oppression. How long, O Lord, until you remember us? We join the martyrs who are gathered under the throne of God in Revelation 6. How long, God, until you avenge our blood? We know He will eventually in His perfect time. And so there's no reason to fear. Jesus told us in this world, this 2021 world, You'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome 
the world. So if, if human dominion has been judged, evaluated, its days are numbered, Jesus is ruling and reigning, hold the national identity in a loose hand, and don't be afraid of whatever is coming. But two, it shifts our mission to the world. If it's true that Jesus is already ruling and reigning, it brings a different sort of flavor to what he told his disciples in Matthew 24 when he was telling them about the end of the world. And he said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, will be preached to the ends of the earth. Uh, we don't go to the world saying, hey, you guys, I've you know, got this new kind of thing you might want to try on for size. See if God can't make your life better or something. See if he can't deal with your anxiety or your depression or see if he can't deal with your disordered marriage. See if he can't help you parent your kids better. No, we go announcing Jesus has judged all human authorities and he is seated at the right hand of God where he's perfectly ruling and reigning and bringing all things to its appointed end. And you better get ready because you can bow to him now and confess him as Lord or one day you will feel the full heat of the streaming fire of his wrath. So we go in the world to preach the gospel of the kingdom. King Jesus is ruling and reigning, calling people everywhere to do as Paul said in Romans chapter 10, to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Shapes our mission to the world. But most importantly, and I'm closing with this, if Daniel 7 is true, God's evaluated human kingship, human dominion, and he's judged it in the Son on the cross, and he's handed over all dominion to Jesus, then it changes our personal attitude to Jesus. You know, you know Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will you give your life to the King of kings? the Lord of Lords. Will you live for Jesus? I always say that. Will you live for Jesus, which means will you live for His glory, not your glory? Will you live for His kingdom and not your kingdom? Will you live for His fame and not your fame? Will you set your hope on eternity? Or will you believe, like so many do, that this is all there is? If Daniel 7 is true, this is not all there is. This is just a prelude to the real thing that already is and will be forever. And so today, we have to settle in our hearts. Will I give myself to one of these beast kingdoms, whether a nation or whether a perfect little personal empire of bank accounts and 401ks and retirement plans, or will I give my all to Jesus? If you take it to heart like Daniel did, you won't be able to bow before Him fast enough. You will confess Him as Lord. You'll reorder your whole life so that everybody sees that you're not living for anything that's here, but you're living for the things that are to come. That is what it means to be faithful for the future, knowing that God has already evaluated human dominion, judged it, and handed it over perfectly, completely to Jesus, who will exercise it in righteousness forever. So if today you need to do that, you need to confess Jesus as Lord, I would love to help you figure that out. And after we sing this last song and we're dismissed, please come grab me and talk to me. All right, will y'all pray with me?